I am Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello, and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge to go through that 1986 classic movie Highlander, scene by glorious scene. I'm your host, Rob Daniel, and as always, I am thrilled to say that I am joined by McKinsman, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I am thrilled to say, you'd have heard her on the previous episode, she's back, we have Sarah Johnson on the episode again to talk about Date Night Part 2. Electric Boogaloo. Indeed, it just only gets worse. Hmm. I'm very, very, very pleased to be here. (laughs) It is always absolutely wonderful to have you here. Okay, so for those who like to keep track, uh, the time code today is 105.38 to 108.58. So we're going to finish off the scene in which Connor, as Russell Nash, and Brenda have their, in heavily inverted commas, date, um, where he goes around to her apartment and they just basically start to argue with each other and there's a gun involved and uh, yeah, so I know some people out there might be saying, well, that's just like a typical date night, but anyway, <laughs> exactly. we will get that, into it. That hmm. So we pick it up from where Brenda has put on her earrings, those massive 80s earrings, and She's finally managed it. And, uh, so she has come into the lounge area of her lovely spacious flat. And uh, yes, he yes he opens the brandy first, doesn't he? And then then gives her the book. Um, he does. Well, also he, he talks to her. So she's, she's finishing putting her earrings on. And she lies to him, doesn't she, while she's doing it? And f- Well, first he finally takes his coat off. Yeah, and just <laughs> tosses it to the side. So we never find out why he was reluctant to take it off, first of all. Yeah, take your coat. No, thanks. What? I'll hold on to it. Maybe he thought that she hadn't got the heating on. It's just weird. Or he's, I don't know, he was keeping the brandy up his sleeve. Who knows? It's like a, like a weird power move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when women, can I take your coat? No. Yeah. Do you mind if I smoke? <sighs> you know, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because she's still in the bedroom, isn't she, when he, she lies to him? Did you say that uh, she works for the Met Museum, doesn't she? I can't remember. I think it's something like that. That's right, yes. Yeah, she, she works for the Met in, in acquisitions. You never told me what you do for a living. I work for the Metropolitan Museum in acquisitions. That's right. As I said, I've noted again about her house being a treasure trove of antiques. It's like, well, if she did work for them, she'd be investigating for thieving from them. So just as well, she doesn't. But um, I do think she really likes old things. We'll just throw that out there. So, you know, maybe this is going to end up okay for Connor. Yeah, extends to her taste in men. She's got that really that really nice poster or piece, you know, piece of art with all the New Yorker covers on it. <laughs> I was just about to yeah. say that, Rob. It's Some lovely things. It's such an odd thing because everything else she's got is like, it's art from around the world, fine art, wildlife pictures, ornamental antiques and weaponry, and then framed images of New Yorker covers, and it's like, hmm, 
Okay, that's interesting. Were they as... Yes, quickly, let's just show that she's in New York. Were they a sponsor for this as well, along with um, Doritos from a previous episode? But uh, yeah, so... Could well be. But I do think they're trying to make a, a parallel, as we see later on, to McLeod's kind of inner sanctum, so to speak. It's, it's, it's She's also surrounded by things from the past. Yes. That's obviously, you know, that's her jam, so that's quite interesting. And as you said, it also extends to her taste in men. She's interested in old stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I think it's also one of those things where, because now, because he opens up the brandy from 1783 and takes a sniff of it. Yes. And then talks about it, everything that happened in 1783. Brandy, bottled in 1783. Wow, that's old. 1783 was a very good year. Mozart wrote his great mass. The Montgolfier brothers went up in their first balloon. <laughs> and England recognized the independence of the United States. Is that right? Yes. And she's really impressed by that. And I think, is it an element of the set design here that she's obviously cultured and educated, but is still amazed by him that he can just do this from a sniff of brandy but also i think he because he's being a bit weird as well and you know obviously we're we all know that he's talking about this from a personal point of view so there's a you know the implication that actually not only is he immortal and lives in it forever and ever he doesn't forget things either mm. uh, when he talks about mozart wrote his great mass i don't know symphony numbers 36 is necessarily mozart's great mass but you know we'll let that slide <laughs> and so and then he talks about montgolfier brothers going up in a balloon and then uh the the colony of america granted sort of independence as well while, while sort of sniffing the brandy i do i do appreciate that brenda necks hers there's some nice acting choices and she's she's not relaxed she's constantly you know i really like that she's so she's clearly quite stressed it's not not a relaxed environment yeah, absolutely. So, but I also, you know, hate to think how much I'm sure I, I looked up how much brandy would cost, and it's like thousands and thousands. So obviously, we we know the implication is he's bought it from his own collection. But I think there was a brandy, the most expensive brandy sold was from a similar time period, and it sold for like two hundred sixty-eight thousand or something. That is an expensive bottle of brandy. Yeah, but it's cheaper when you've just brought it with you. It's cheaper when you picked it up on. <laughs> yeah, when you when you buy it at the offy when it's worth like you know nothing, a few francs, and then you just leave it hundreds and hundreds of years is a <clears throat> another character tells a very famous archaeologist look at this it's worthless and then if you bury it in the sand for a thousand years it becomes priceless <laughs> look at this it's worthless ten dollars from a vendor in the street but i take it i bury it in the sand for a thousand years it becomes priceless like the ark which also suggests that connor is a hoarder yeah but he knows what to hoard so he's going to just Think, right, okay, so booze is always expensive, but if I keep it for 300 years or something, or then it'll be worth quite a lot of money or will impress the next great love of my life. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Because it's that thing of, well, do they have to hide themselves away through history? He's not hiding. You know, if he's got all this kind of old stuff and he's stayed in the same house since 1796, that's not really hiding. It's interesting that nobody's kind of come and found him before that. Because obviously we know the Kurgan isn't, you know, he's... He's off a kind of nomadic, barbarous lifestyle, but he makes no connection. He's just only focused on the prize. And it's like, well, how many of the others are, are the same? And 
is it you know is it the fact that McLeod was one of the first in the new world so we, we see him don't we in one of the later episodes having a duel on Boston Common because when they they're talking about later on you know about how long he's lived there he's been in the same place from 1796 I spent all night going through the old deeds to Nash's house on Hudson Street all the way back through the five previous owners to the original guy Montague in 1796. So it could be that because he's in the new world. So that, I mean that is a quite interesting idea that he's not really hiding from other immortals because surely they would know straight away if you've got somebody who's you know with all these very ancient weapons and old kind of um, artifacts. And I think so. There's that's quite interesting too. Um, you know, it's, it all kind of builds into this thing of uh, he, he has all this stuff because he's been alive that long. It's kind of building up the narrative of how long he's been alive, but also slightly takes away from, well, surely they're meant to be working towards the prize and they're all hiding kind of lone warriors. And he's kind of, I don't know, he, he's a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> he is. It's also one of those things where I want to get either, well, um, I think you could do it as a film, like a side film in which we just see the logistics of him getting all of his stuff. Yeah. From Europe over yeah. to the States because <laughs> it'd be like well presumably that would be a lot that would be like a ship full of stuff right that you're just going to then and then it would arrive months later and you'd have mm. to get it off and it'd be like all this stuff and anyway blah, blah, blah. or like one of those like storage hunter style shows where they open up a locker right. and just find it's full of right. <laughs> <laughs> antiquities from like you know 15 century says, hang on a minute, whose place is this? Oh, it says it's dead. Crate full of 200-year-old bottles of brandy. <laughs> it's about... We're rich! Seven million dollars here. <laughs> but we'll have to release them very quietly onto the market because the reason they're, they're worth so much money is they're so rare. That's right. Unless we smash the them all now, apart from... Yes. No, you don't want to... And also, I'm, I'm not sure how drinkable brandy... I mean, brandy and cognac and stuff, I think cognac age is better than brandy. Um, because cognac's made from grapes, whereas brandy can be made from just any fruit, I think. Oh, I, I love the thought that the reason that Brenda slugs it is because it's actually undrinkable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, this is the thing. It's really old. I mean, I, I lived in a, I lived somewhere for a while where they found a lot of sort of 17th century wine little, uh, underneath part of the house, and they actually opened one of them, and obviously it was just undrinkable. It was. It wasn't even like it was vinegar. It was just, you know, horrible. Yeah, right. So... But yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe it would be drinkable, who knows. Rob, does, uh, does Mulcahy talk about this at all on the commentary? Yes, um, but just before I get that, I just want to quickly say that I only drank cognac for the first time a few years ago, and I'd always wanted to try it, but thought, but then, yeah, just never got around to it. Um, but there was a work do where we went to this hotel, and the hotel said, oh, you can have like a round of drinks for free, and it can be anything. So I ordered a cognac that was £20, um, and it arrived in this massive, massive glass that was like a goldfish bowl. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be a very, very fine cognac. I let it breathe. Yep, indeed, and sort of like, you know, swilled it around and stuff and took a sip. But it was like, that's horrible. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> and now I look at it, there's loads left. <laughs> I have to try and drink it all. It was just like, oh, it was such a disappointment that cognac, it turns out, is actually just not very nice. Um, I think it depends as well. It depends on the kind of cognac. But yes, not for everyone. Depends what you like. It's like whiskey. You know, some whiskeys are not, people don't like them. Well, this is Rob's area of expertise. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rob once offered me a Dalwini and I said, yes, have you got any Coke that I can, Oh, nice. Have you got any Coke that I can mix it with? And Rob, <laughs> who is the nicest person in Get the world... Out. Um, for a split second, looked like he was going to punch me. <laughs> I realised, oh, is it not one that you're supposed to mix? And he said, no, no, it's it's not. And I don't think you will need to mix it. I think you've yeah. been drinking shit up until now. <laughs> 
Andy was right. I tried this and it was like, actually, that's a very, very smooth whiskey. That's not like the gut rot that I've been drinking. So, uh, yes, I think Rob's just yeah. seething with the memory of it. Well, my lovely wife, the, lo- the lovely uh, Rose, is a very big fan of, uh, of whiskey. So we have we have Talisker, we have uh, Glenmorangie, we've got, you know, um, we've got a nice selection. And then off mic, you and Rob are going to have to compare notes. That sounds, yes. I've got a new, I've got a new bottle in at the moment. I may have a dram of in a bit before I go into bed. Oh, beautiful. I went to an absolutely superb, I was in, I, I kind of gate crashed, but not in a horrible way, a funeral with a friend of mine once who needed to have some moral support of a, a guy who was a, a very good friend of his. And he, this guy had a most amazing whiskey collection. And one of the things in his will was that all of his collect- his whiskey collection was kind of laid out at the um, the wake, and people could help themselves to um, the you know fancy bottles if they want, but that people drink it and enjoy it. And it was one of the it was a really lovely, joyous, remembering occasion. And oh my goodness me, everybody got absolutely trollied <laughs> as well. Hmm. But it was it was a nice sort of send off. I like that he was you know <laughs> everyone enjoy this. I have collected it my whole life. Mm, That's great. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, yeah, just to your point, Rob, about the um, so on the audio commentary. Yeah, Russell Mulcahy, he talks about the fact that Connor takes a sniff and inhales really deeply and then remembers what happened in 1783 was actually taken from the composer-producer Jim Steinman, who of course worked with Meatloaf on Bat Out of Hell um, and Bonnie Tyler. And, um, and Russell Mulcahy, he just knew him from, you know, from his music video days. Well, he, he worked with, um, he wrote Total Clips of the Heart. Which, of course, Russell McKay directed the music video for. Yeah, so he said that um, there was one time when he was with Jim Steinman in Amsterdam. And they were talking about a project. And Jim Steinman opened a bottle of wine and immediately sniffed the air between the cork and the top of the bottle of wine. And took this big sniff. And Russell McKay said, what are you doing? And he said, well, this air is from 1953. So I'm literally going back in time now by inhaling this. And uh, apparently it was a thing that he always did when he opened up a bottle of wine. And yes, Ross Mulcahy thought that was quite a nice thing to do. So I thought, well, actually, we can work it into this scene. Yeah, Utilise it. I do think this, the smell of things is very evocative, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and there is something about, you know, oldness. Although, you know, obviously we don't apply the same smelling of things to perhaps, I don't know, ice samples from the dawn of time drilled out of Antarctica, perhaps. Like, <laughs> you know, just, you know, oh, it's just, you know, in fact, didn't they recently find that, isn't there a sarcophagus they found uh, in, in Egypt, which is some bl- other previously sealed black sarcophagus that they're, they're talking about opening and taking air samples from. And everyone in the world at the moment is like, no, please don't. Can you please not do that? Yeah, that's right. It's like, <laughs> Have you not ever seen a film? <laughs> right now, the state of the world doesn't seem to be the, the right time to unleash something that we don't know what forces you're messing with. Um, or alternately, unleash it now because it's going to want to have nothing to fucking do with us. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so we unleash it now and it's going to go like, sorry guys, I'm, I'm meant to be the manifestation of an ancient curse. I don't know what I can add here. <laughs> yeah, but you've got this at the moment. I'll come back later. It's like... Um, the, the fact that over the last few years there's been endless attempts to go, look, look, there's some interesting footage from Area 51 and there's, there's maybe some evidence that UFOs are real and literally the entire world as one has gone, no, not now. Yeah. You just, no. <laughs> we'll look at it later, just please don't. Just can't deal with <laughs> another potentially life-threatening, world-changing event right now. So, <laughs> yeah. It's like a, I keep saying, you know, I really enjoyed 20th century history. I just didn't want to experience the entire 20th century history in the space of three years. Can we please stop? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Yes, I think we're all getting to feel a bit like Connor now, where it's like, I just feel like I've lived yes. <laughs> a thousand lifetimes. Um, but uh, yes, so... So he does have his weird sniffing and explaining, doesn't he? And then I, I do quite like the way that it's sort of then the full throw to Brenda and her sort of, what's that? She's sort of impressed, but then she kind of is like, what, what, what's that? And I remember when you first see it, you're like, what's she talking about? And she's talking about the, the gift he's bought for her. What's that? It's for you. Can I open it? If you like. That's right, yes. The um and this is it's an interesting moment this, because it seems to be that she's kind of thawing out and that they're getting somewhere with their date, because when she takes the gift over to the side sideboard and she's opening up and you can see her reflection in the mirror, in a really, really nice bit of acting by Roxanne Hart, she looks genuinely yeah. excited and pleased that she's been brought something. She does. Although you'd have thought as she wrote said gazillion page book, she might know what it is. Yeah, the weight and shape of this feels quite familiar, but um but yes. That's what she that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> and and also the fact that everything else about him has been weird. Has been weird, exactly. It's a good job he's nice looking, because otherwise he'd be immediately shot. I think anybody ugly who come into her apartment and acted that way should have just shot him. <laughs> this is known as yeah, this is what is now known as the notebook syndrome. Like that film The Notebook, which oh. I'm sorry, millions of ladies in the world just absolutely swooned for that film, oh, but it's like dear. he's a fucking stalker. He's yes, he is. It's only because it's only because it's Ryan Gosling that you think this is romantic. If I was doing that exact same thing, you would rightly call the police on exactly. me. He is a stalker who won't take no for an answer. Well, a lot of time um, for Rachel McAdams, but even I struggle with the notebook. I can't watch her in the notebook. <laughs> Not enough. This is my my love of Rachel McAdams cannot cannot carry far enough to watch this. I just think it was an early film for her, so I was like, that's fine. It was when you were on the ascent. If she was to do the notebook, too, she was young. Yeah, she knows she what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so it is one of those things where I think if if you're dashing, you can get away with a lot of weirdness on a first date. Um, yeah. But the but yeah, this is um, but it's interesting because it's like I I quite like the reveal. Of, I, I like her reaction to the reveal of the book. I really like that. That she's like you bastard. Like I wasn't you're not expecting it. No. But she's not. I don't know. I I just quite like that she's immediately quite sort of you know chippy about it. <laughs> you bastard! Where did you find this? I have an extensive library. Chippy, such an English thing, isn't it? <laughs> chippy, Chippy Brenda. Chippy, Chippy Brenda. I think we've got an episode title now. Chippy, Chippy, chippy Brenda. Brenda. <laughs> um, you know, I quite like that, though. I quite like instead of being like trying to deny or I, I like that reaction. So and then she's sort of rumbled, but she's also still sort of, I don't know. Odd thing. Your bio doesn't mention the Met. It says you work for the police. In forensics. In in all fairness, you wouldn't actually want to go to a dinner party with either of them. I don't know. I think <laughs> no, not at all. They're both they're both full of it. And she's clearly not made any food. There's any any cursory background stuff. And surely there's also there's not a dinner. Is there a dinner table anywhere that we've seen? We barely see into the kitchen. No, not not in evidence. <laughs> I didn't see one. And also, he hasn't said "oh, smells great" or anything like that. So I don't think that. Yeah, yeah. What are we having? That would be my first. What are we having? That'd be my I think first we're gonna question. have. <laughs> is it you? Oh wait, no, too soon. We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna have some toast. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Well, first you boil your kettle, then sound, and then you open your pot noodle. That's right, yes. <laughs> um, but I do, I mean, again, as we've said before, this scene is just up and down the whole time, so it goes from one thing to another. I like when he confronts her and says, um, you're going to use the 45 ring, the call to the cop outside and stuff like that. Are you and Moran trying to set me up? I don't work for Moran. Then why is that bald policeman sitting outside watching your apartment? You remember him. 
Mine's at him tailing me. What are you going to do? Question is, what are you going to do? You're going to turn off the tape or are you going to shoot me with a 45? That she then yeah. kind of reveals what it is that she actually wants from him and it's to know about the sword. Yeah. And there's a real... And that's a lovely bit of acting, isn't it? Yeah. Just the way she does it. I love how that that all spills out, that she genuinely is obsessive, that this is her, what she's been looking for. You know, it's a completely miraculous thing. I am not looking for a killer. I am looking for a sword, the one used on Fazil. I found pieces of it under the garden. I only want to see the samurai. And I was, I was really struck watching it that actually, I don't know, maybe, maybe they would go this way, but that there is a sort of alternate universe where this film is about her as this incredible scientist and historical metallurgist or metallurgist um, trying to find this miraculous sword that's kind of like, you know, going to be career making and, and inadvertently gets sort of dragged into this whole load of nonsense about the immortals. And then, but, you know, there's another film where she's the lead, basically. There's a version of this that, you know, there, I know we've talked about this a long time ago. There are lots of parallels with uh, The Hunger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, go on. Sorry, Rob, how do you mean? Oh, in terms of in, in The Hunger, it's Susan Sarandon as a as a, uh, a gerontologist, I think. No, that's right. And she's trying to... Yeah, who's kind of like look, looking into the effects of ageing. Yeah. And then she happens to be approached by a vampire. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the equivalent in this that, you know... Her background, you know, she's she's written a book on ancient metallurgy and discovers the existence of a sword. An impossible sword, basically, yeah. You know, that would be like, you know, discovering a, uh, a 747 a thousand years before the Wright brothers ever flew. It's not supposed to exist. I dated pieces of the blade at 600 BC. The metal had been folded 200 times. Now the Japanese didn't start making swords like that till the Middle Ages. So where the hell did it come from? If I could verify the existence of such a weapon, it would be like discovering a 747 years before the Wright brothers ever flew. Which, you know, between that and the Mongolfia brothers line, there's a lot of references to the history of aviation in this. <laughs> there is, considering nobody goes on a plane that's anywhere. Right. Um, that's a good shout, actually, about The Hunger, yeah. Yeah, I love The Hunger. And that also has a, an interesting electronic score and, and uh, a very high aesthetic, you know, it's in the same wheelhouse, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, but I do like, yeah, to your point, Sarah, I, I, I do like the way that she delivers that line and just that whole thing about because it's, and you can argue that this film does do what every single 80s film does, and actually films up to now, really, in terms of it gives the female character something to be interested in until the plot needs them to focus on the man. Yeah. But there's a real joy to the way the Roxanne Hart delivers that line, that it's like, well, actually, I'm quite interested in her story, and I'd, I'd like to know that. Yeah, because it's not a, not you would, what you traditionally get from a, a female character. Like, it's a really interesting idea that why she's obsessed with weapons and swords. And I really hope they lean into that, actually, in the remake. I'd like to see that be a bit more, um, you know, interestingly done. Or as I said, it, it just gives her a bit of agency, which is nice. Mm. And that'd be quite fun, actually, if, yeah, there's a fight scene with multiple immortals and she's clocking all the different swords. Yeah, yeah that's what she's interested. I mean, also, the, the bit that kind of off of that where... He's like, you don't ever think about anything except for what you want. You know, this kind of weird hissy fit he has and with lots of very intense staring at her. For far too long, it's all very awkward, isn't it? It goes on for a bit too long. This is crazy. Wait a minute, Nash. I want some answers. You want? Don't you ever think about anything except what you want? And I did honestly think, hang on a minute, he's having a bit of a, a tanty and I don't quite understand why he has that reaction. The only thing I can think of is that actually he suddenly realised she's far more, far more into the idea of his 
of this sword than she is into him. And is he is he like offended by this? That actually that's all she's interested in. You get the impression if Ramirez was still alive, that's who she'd be she'd be up for. She wouldn't be interested in McLeod. She'd want to talk to Ramirez about, you know, making swords. Yeah, that's I've I've got something very, very similar in in my notes about when um yeah, it says where she said, I want to know more or something like that. And he says, you want to ever think about anything except what you want? You want. Yeah, it's a really weird kind of what. And it's like, well, you're both very selfish, very judgmental people. Like there's no, yeah. con. it's not like you've been out doing charity work. He just seems quite immature for somebody who's hundreds of years old. But I think he's kind of like, because the film has led us to believe that she is going to be his first love for hundreds of years. And so therefore he's obviously comparing her to Heather. Yeah. And... In the next episode, we're going to get into, oh my God. How unselfish Heather was. Yeah, indeed. And just like, yeah, and the how sweetest how selfish moments. he was. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And it's like, so you haven't even offered me pie and ale. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Heather always gave me pie and ale. <laughs> pie and ale. Do you want it? Aye. Like now. <laughs> For dying of old age with a sheep under her arm. <laughs> Whatever it was. She was so selfless. <laughs> she was selfless <laughs> and she devoted herself to me. Um, yeah, so by the logical extension of that, it kind of means that Connor's been a bit of a male chauvinist in this scene, because it's like, well, are you annoyed that she's a strong-willed woman with her own agenda? Because it, that's how it's coming across here yeah. a little bit, mate. Um, and and he, he should be re- really relieved, because she's interested in the sword. She's not interested in, you know, she's not interested in getting evidence on him to give to the police. She's not, you know, all that stuff he maybe was worried about. That Surely that should be a relief to him. That No, this is what she's interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, so, so you don't like strong-willed women. Because, of course, he also lived with Rachel. And you could yeah. say, well, she kind of sacrificed her life to stay with him because cause they could never be romantically involved. So she yeah. forwent any kind of um, relationship. So it's like, okay, so well, that's interesting. But you know who does like strong women? The Kurgan. The Kurgan. Because <laughs> Candy is her own woman. Hi. I'm Candy. Of course you are. <laughs> she is. It's like, now I'm having to think, who is the real hero of this story? I mean, always Clancy Brown. Always. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think I'm looking forward to see what they do with the Kurgan in it. As I said, it, it looks like Henry Cavill is going to be Con McLeod, which I think, I think, I'm going to put it out here now, I think he'd be a great Kurgan. I think he should play yeah. against type and be a bad guy. But if they're not going to do that, I want to see a female Kurgan. I think get Charlize Theron or somebody in. And uh, and do the Kurgan as a lady. One thing I was going to say here is that these two in this scene, they have great faces for close-ups. There are there are a lot of close-ups in this scene, and they just both look great. It's <laughs> like definitely, they do. I did think to myself watching this, why wasn't Roxanne Hart in more stuff? Because she's fantastic in Highlander, yeah. and she's really got an, a bit of a slightly more of an unusual look for the eighties. And I'm like, why wasn't she in more stuff? Yeah, and I think it could be it. It could be that she's. But it's like, well, but she's gorgeous. I mean, she looks great. And yeah. she has that amazing hair and that amazing smile. And it's like, and she can clearly act a whole register of different emotions in a single scene. Like she's called upon to do it. Yeah, well, she does bring a lot of the acting, doesn't she, yeah. to a lot of their scenes. He brings the intensity, but she brings the acting. Yeah, it's always one of those things where it's like, it just didn't quite work out in terms of her being a big leading lady, which I think is a real shame. But um but then I'm not sure Lambert went on to be a big leading man in the way that you might have thought, really, if you think about it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's um, he had more lead roles than Roxanne Hart had, but they tended to be in smaller films. I mean, he was never the lead in like a big blockbuster, was he? Um, yeah, yeah, he never crossed over. And to your point, I mean, the fact that he holds that stare 
after he says, do you ever think about but anything that... It just it goes on for ages, doesn't it? It goes on for five seconds. And... Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. In a way, but it's like, there is something quite cool and also comical about the fact that he's just had a bit of a strop at her and he won't stop staring at her. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He has a tanty and he leaves in a huff, basically. After just staring at her for five seconds like he's a really, really angry parent or something. and yeah, But also a bit hurt. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's basically... It is like you like the sword more than... you. This is all about the sword, isn't it? It's not even my sword. That's it's right. his sword. This is so unfair. It's like, yeah, that, that would play more sincerely if you hadn't just immediately started going through her things. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're That's both right. here with ulterior motives. Come on now, don't play that. You're both, yeah, you're both terrible. Yes, you just... You just want me for my sword. <laughs> As we said, this is uh, this is all about the sword. It is. Yeah, you're right. It is a weird scene in that we get a lot about the history of aviation. We get a lot of <laughs> tantrums and team behaviour from someone who's 400 years old. And um, yes, it's... Uh, and also the whole thing is kind of shot like a thriller. But what is nice about it is that when you think about when it was set, one of the things I really like about it is there is no attempt at all to have her be a honey trap. She, there's no attempt at being sexy or coquettish. She's not revealingly dressed. I really like that about watching it back. You're like, well, what's great is, you know, he doesn't turn up and she's got plunge cleavage or anything like that. It's very... And she's not being particularly weird in that way to try and seduce him to get her yeah. information, which is, I think it, that is slightly, you know, that's not the typical of some 80s stuff, which was at the time. So I like that. I like that it's spiky and weird and sort of combative. How do we think she was planning on getting the information out of him? Maybe she just makes a really good birth bourguignon or something and he would have been like, do you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I've had a birth bourguignon yeah. like this since I was in France in 1815, which reminds me, look at this sword. <laughs> That's exactly how she was hoping it would go. Is it birth bourguignon? I don't think it's that old. I'm going to reveal my food nerdiness. And I think it's quite a modern... <laughs> I, think, I don't think even it's Escoffier. I think it's later. Let's go to the food bit for the food nerds. This is the best haggis I've had since <laughs> exactly. uh, since I was in. You've been to Scotland? Yes, exactly. I, I didn't get that from the accent. Yeah. Uh, you know, as somebody who's made haggis myself, I mean, I'd, I'd give props to Brenda if she was going to take that on. Well, I think that you would have. Well, you know what you would have to recommend her for a second meal, Rob. It would be pie and ale. Pie That it'd really start talking. <laughs> I mean, like, let me tell you about my friend Ramirez. I tell you that I'm immortal. Um, um. <laughs> yeah, so there's, um, that's an interesting point, Sarah, about the fact that, yeah, she's not a honey trap. And that no. then makes me think, because I said on the previous episode that they shot this scene twice because no one liked the dress she was wearing in the first time they shot it. But Russell McCarthy on the audio commentary doesn't talk about why they didn't like it. I wonder if it's because maybe it was something that had like a... It was more provocative. ...plunging neckline or something like that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like she... Because she looks great in this and the and the outfit that she's wearing is a really, really nice outfit. But you're right. It's not like you're showing lots of leg or anything like that. So, yeah. No, it's just, you know, she, it's just a sort of normal... She's got a pencil skirt and a slightly weird glittery green blouse. But yeah, I, I quite like that though. I like that it's not kind of... You know, how, how are you kind of, zip, you know, plunge top and everything. Yeah. So she's obviously hoping to just entrap him. or get. She basically just wants information about the sword. And I quite like that that's what her motive is. Yeah. But again, my thing is like, how is she planning to entrap him? Because neither of them have proven to be particularly charming or persuasive. <laughs> yes. And they're, they're, yeah, they're talking across purposes. and I think it's the haggis. They needed haggis, it's true. It's the haggis. <laughs> 
yeah, so they are talking across purposes. But then it's like, but she did have the foresight to have a loaded gun in the room. Always important. <laughs> I none of it none of it adds up really when like yeah, from sentence to sentence, but it's like It really doesn't. I mean maybe she was hoping that they would drink a lot of brandy and then he'd just, you know, tell her about the sword. It's gotta be that right, yeah. We can put that bottle of brandy away. We can have the toast that I'm making and um then you can tell me about your weapon, which was yes. folded <laughs> a couple of thousand times. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> But he is, so that explains why he's so hurt. She's not interested in him, she just wants his sword. But no, he has that, that is inter- and I really like as well, you have that very intense eye, eye contact, strong stare that just goes on for a bit too long, like he's kind of looking into her. And then when as he leaves, I like I quite like that she kind of lets out that, she kind of sighs with relief. The whole thing is very odd and not comfortable, and I, I, quite, I quite like that. Yeah, yeah, indeed, definitely. And also this has one of those lines that sticks with you. And that line is, it'd be like discovering a 747 a thousand years before the Wright brothers ever flew. Yeah, before the Wright brothers ever flew. It's great. That, it's a great that idea. That line has always stuck with Like me. her, you know, that it's that important to her, whereas everyone else is like, the, the yeah. what with the metal? <laughs> Why what? is this important? <laughs> yeah? on, the, on the machine that you used that wouldn't have ever been able to show you that. But anyway, <laughs> to research it, yeah. you're extrapolating quite a lot. That's actually mentioned on the audio commentary as well, that like, yeah, okay, so from fragments, she can get that <laughs> it's okay that doesn't quite yeah. Yeah, okay but that's also one of those things where it goes into um yeah whenever anyone says in a film we got their dna from something it's like <laughs> how what but what yeah depending on when the film or tv series was made you're like really so up until about 1997 or was it 2003 it would take you several years to get the dna coding i can remember one of my my sister lucy who's a scientist and her having a complete tanty and deciding to stop watching the x-files for a bit when they they sequenced what alien dna and i think it's season two towards the end of season two and she was like right and out as somebody who'd spent a lot of time in labs that's meticulous hours sequencing stuff she's like no they can't do it in that that length of time i'm out i'm not watching this anymore the series is ridiculous <laughs> it's quick it's it's quicker now i'm, I'm quite keen on the idea that the reason that Connor and Brenda are clear, no, should ultimately end up together is they're both a bit rubbish. <laughs> yeah, they're both a bit crap, aren't they? In what way, Rob? Come on. They're both a bit self-involved yeah. and sort of and not very good at human. You know, I mean, maybe if they also made the film, I, you know, you could have that thing if the film was being made now. Maybe the reveal, you know, it wouldn't be a big surprise to find out that she's also an immortal, but she doesn't know it yet, just because she's so old, like he is. That's exactly what they did. That would have been quite they a good thing. They would have done that, yeah. Um, or they would do that now, that's right. Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the rubbish is a bit harsh. I think if they were to get together, one of them would use the gun on the other one within a week. <laughs> be like, oh, it turns out, <laughs> it turns out I hate living with someone. Just as well that he can't be killed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it turns out that I hate the idea of sharing my space <laughs> although they both love having loads of old weaponry around so maybe it'd be fine actually can you imagine what their house would have been like the baby room would be a hoot <laughs> well this is where we've got the uh, the iron maiden over here <laughs> we keep the nappies hung up in it well, yes the uh, the baby room might not be an option oh yes indeed that's right <laughs> yeah the dummy like dummy on some of the racks here <laughs> next to the claim wars <laughs> although once he's once he's claimed the prize yes that's true well, yeah, that's right yes yep indeed but it, it would be the war of the roses by the end of the year they would be arguing over square footage and then they would be trying to kill each other. Well, we have already established that Connor is yuppie scum. Yes, that's, yeah, that's right. He is, he is. He also, it's weird looking at his outfit in this. I was slightly reminded of our politicians just because he's wearing kind of an ill-fitting uh, single-breasted jacket and a, and a kind of coat and, you know, 
that is a bit of a sort of he's either looks like a politician or like you know there's a, a whole load of late 80s cop shows where they all turn up wearing that kind of trench coat over a you know a, a big panted suit yeah he's wearing the height of 80s leading man fashion in this scene uh he is he is it's quite disturbing really and he seems always seems i was think looking at it again he seems blonder in these scenes than he is in some of the rest of it as well yeah like he's had his frosted yeah. tips done especially for it I wish you'd have seen him with like a little cap on and some hair pulled through it, just doing his frosted tips with a bit of bleach before he went out. <laughs> and it would be Rachel that does that as well. Yeah, I was going to say, Rachel doing his hair for him. <laughs> well, is there anything else to say about the wonderful date night that, uh, yeah, then leads on to, I mean, I'm trying to think what their next date night is. And I think it's when they end up in bed, isn't it? Well, I think, that, well, I was going to say, there's a bit of a, a gap, isn't there, before the next bit when... And the next one isn't even a date night. It's kind of a, a angry kind of she storms into the office. But I do find it interesting that this this see these scenes uh, right before really you know arguably one of the most sort of heart wrenching bits of the the film and and so that's that is very interesting given how awkward and kind of uh, you know spiky and strange they are together when you then you go into the, the sort of melancholic romantic heart really of, of connor's backstory immediately after is i think is a is a good choice actually because it softens him and makes him a bit more likable having then had him be spiky and odd previously yeah because again it's just so weird why is he there what is he hoping to get out of this <laughs> yeah there's no reason so he obviously likes her that that's it i think i think he is just trying to get he's opening himself up he's trying to kind of you know step out of this shell that he's been in since he lost heather and um it doesn't so has he been like has he been outside her flat for like a while like just trying to build up the get up the nerve <laughs> well again that just ties into the what is the time frame of this movie because is this the second or third day that they've known each other or because was it the because when she goes to his shop is that the next day after they were attacked by the kurgan or is that supposed to be like a week later or something i think it's it's never quite explained yeah, then what is the time frame? Absolutely, yeah. I feel like it's immediately afterwards because you would want to go and see him after you've seen him, you know, you've been there while there's been some weird sort of sword fight going on. Because you know, I'm trying to work out if the whole thing takes space, you know, takes place in the space of just literally a couple of weeks. I think he probably does. Because this could be the next night after they met in the bar and then got attacked by the Kurgan, which... Or or maybe or maybe the day after that because he meets her, asks if you can cook, and then maybe you'd wait. You know, you'd do like a a day after, especially if you've got to buy like the pluck of a of a sheep and you have to get barley and oats and, <laughs> yeah, you know, and right. then make the haggis, and so you've got to give yourself a couple of days. <laughs> right, it's um. So I can say with experience. Well, it is like one of those things, and uh, I mean, we're recording this on Good Friday, and. I think Star Wars takes place over four days. So it's literally a bank holiday weekend. Yeah. That Luke is on a planet. And then on on the Good Friday, then on the bank holiday Monday, he's saving the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, that was an interesting weekend you had. And you learn the force really, really quickly. Yeah. But that's the wonder of these great movies where it's like, yes, you don't think in those terms. You don't think in terms of of real time and i think it's, it's the same with this one it's like yeah this is either day two or three of knowing each other but it seems as if they've been working up to this for a while yeah my hero training montage would take so long <laughs> it would just be just be deeply 
deeply disappointing for all concerned. <laughs> yeah. He's not getting better. He's just... He's not yeah, is it, I'm trying to think... <laughs> it's, it has been explored a bit, hasn't it, in other things that you, you can get really good at stuff if you've got loads of time. And I'm trying to think if that, that Immortals film with Charlize Theron did that, whether I'm thinking... I'm sure they've done something in in Angel or one of the, you know, that, that idea of the longer you have to do something, like Groundhog Day. I was going to say, you're thinking of Groundhog Day, yeah. You know, he has an infinite amount of time, so he learns to play the piano, he learns to be less of an arse, so he learns, you know, all of these things. And I wish there'd been a bit more of that in Highlander, because they should all be really, really good. I mean, Ramirez teaches Connor, but then it should be that, you know, he then spends the rest of his life honing those skills. Um, and they should all be really, really good at everything, because that's how human beings kind of, learn really is by repetition by our loops and how we almost experience linear time by you know learning repetitious events mm. basically mm. i do want to see your training montage rob yeah i want to see your training montage rob Con- a considered <laughs> training montage so i don't think i've ever seen a training montage where the person who's doing the training has got their head in their hands so much of the time <laughs> sobbing and just saying please could we stop doing this no we need to keep doing it until you get better but it does isn't it it takes you i read somewhere of this isn't it it takes you ten thousand hours to start to learn something thirty thousand hours to get competent at it and then eighty thousand to hundred thousand plus to become an absolute master at it and that's why people who are they're not so much gifted it's the people who really work at stuff that end up being you know high level athletes or high level artists or high level musicians and quite often it's if it's something they're really interested in they start young which gives them enough time to to sort of build up the hours that's yeah that's the thing yeah yes so for anyone who uh is thinking about studying a language now and they're <laughs> over the age of 35 <laughs> it, it's already too late although lang- i don't know lang- i always think language is an interesting one because you can you can't go wrong by just going out and being with the people who speak that language and having to get on because like when i was at university i was the only english speaking so university in the uk but we had lots of foreign students and uh they stuck me in a house where i was the only english speaker in a house full of norwegians <laughs> and by the end of my three-year degree i could understand like the spoken Norwegian, I, I couldn't speak it as well, but I knew exactly what they were all on about all the time. It was quite interesting. Oh, wow. All, all that remains, all I can remember is, um, I think, mini erguk e shimper erguk, which is tiny cucumber, large cucumber, and yajar norsk, which is I'm Norwegian. That's about all I can remember. <laughs> I mean, what else do you need, really? <laughs> yajar norsk will now be the title of this episode, <laughs> and there'll be no context oh. given. <laughs> That's right. You have to do that. I think mini, mini erguk e shimper erguk, tiny cucumber, large cucumber, surely. And why I can remember those, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so when you watch the beginning of the thing you know what they're saying which apparently is <laughs> no that's not a dog it's dangerous yeah it's not a dog kill it kill it yeah something yeah, like that dangerous kill it well i hope that you kill uh that you kill, killed your flatmates <laughs> i think i'm i'm doing a bit of connor there they were very lovely i don't think, i don't think i can understand norwegian now i i can recognize it if this so i don't understand it anymore at all but if i hear it spoken i know it's norwegian if that makes sense yeah. so if i hear people speaking what sounds like uh you know you can hear swedish or finnish I used to, we used to work with somebody who was finnish and i knew I, I can tell norwegian when it's spoken i can't tell you i can't understand it anymore well, I hope that you called your Norwegian flatmates those crazy Swedes in another reference to the thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. You really want to save those crazy Swedes, huh? Norwegians. I was the shortest person in my house, and I'm five foot wow. eight. They were lovely, kind, sweet girls. One of them played for the Norwegian uh, volleyball team. Jana was 
six foot four, six foot. They were all lovely. Incred all the cliches are true. Incredibly tall and athletic and gorgeous. And I have never had so many of my heterosexual male friends visit me hmm. when I live with the Norwegians in, like, in history. Oh, oh, how interesting, uh, Neil. You're here again. Oh, well, it's nice to see you. But it's oh yes, do yes, the girls are all here. You know, literally. But they were very lovely, and because you know Nordics and Scandinavian people are very, very nice. They immediately, upon discovering I was a lesbian, and being very disapproving of how repressed you know things could be, even in the sort of end of the 90s in this this country, they immediately then tried to set me up with various friends. So I had a, a very sweet but slightly uncomfortable time where this is Uta, and I'm like, hello Uta, hello. This <laughs> <laughs> kind of you know, various Norwegian ladies. Uh, some of them, you know, very attractive, but quite often quite strapping and uh, shorn of hair and like they could wrestle a bear and all very nice. And I was a bit like, this is very nice, but you need to stop, please. <laughs> Did you find yourself at any point having to put a gun into a drawer and like a tape recorder into well, another drawer? Well, no, we've all been there. <laughs> the tape recording device into a music box. <laughs> it sounds like a big Reeve sketch, doesn't it? I like to put a plum under a viper. I like to put a glass, delicate glass bell inside a handbag. I enjoy to put, um, put a gun in a filing cabinet drawer, uh, a Regency drawer, and uh, I like to put a very, very short-range tape recorder into a music box, <laughs> so everything I say will be <laughs> with muffles through it. I, I now do want to see an extended version of it, where it's just Connor continuing, or having previously been opening drawers that just contain random <laughs> shit. Random things. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this one's got a fingerprint got... kit in it. This one's got a magnifying glass. Half-eaten sandwich in this one. <laughs> <laughs> reaching into a filing cabinet and pulling out a trombone it's like <laughs> playing it sadly <laughs> <laughs> this one's got that weird headshot of me from from the police station where i look like a model <laughs> ah, she kept that yeah. yes. i love that i love that they've got the most like ridiculous yeah, bone right. cover headshot ever that's what a hope chest with his coat <laughs> done up <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so um, so on that Norwegian note, uh, is there anything else to say about this particular sequence? Yes, yeah, sorry, I'm taking you off on a tangent there. I'm, I'm pleased that I was here for the worst date ever. I'm glad we, we got through it together. Thrilled you were here for the worst date ever. These are our romantic leads, guys. Just revel in that. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, it is just... Yeah, it's so weird, the romantic subplot of this. It's not as perfunctory as the police investigation but no but it does it does get well i'm hoping i'm hoping to be with you for the only thing that is even worse than the world's worst date is literally what could be one of the most disturbing seduction scenes on screen so maybe i'll be back oh that. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah continuing yeah. the the strange choice of weapons in romantic situations absolutely that's coming up and is a uh Try hard not to kink shame in that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, okay, then. Well, if there's nothing else... Um, sorry, Rob, anything from you to add to this? <laughs> I think that's it from me, too. <laughs> well, if you want to put the uh, trombone back into Brenda's cupboard, then we'll do... <laughs> then we'll just uh, wrap up. <laughs> so, Sarah, if anyone wanted to stalk you on the internet, um, <laughs> where could they do that? Uh, I would love them to come and stalk me. I'm on Twitter as Strapping Lass. Please come and stalk me. Excellent. And Mr. Wallace. Uh, if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace or find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And if people wanted to hear our thoughts about film in general, 
Is there a place where they could do that? Oh well, uh, I, I think yeah, it's, uh, I think we've got a might have another pod called uh, called the Movie Robcast, which uh, yeah, it's just more general film chat. Uh, I I don't think it could be more specific film chat though. Again, on the, maybe on the strength of this episode, <laughs> who can say? Um, yes, you can find the Movie Robcast at the podcatcher of your choice wherever you're listening to this. You can also follow that on Twitter at Movie Robcast. Excellent, thank you very much. I hear you sometimes have uh, excellent guest stars on that. Oh, we have. It has been known. <laughs> it has been known to have splendid guests on that. And the great thing is that the guests we've had in the past, we're going to have again in the future. Excellent. <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com and at filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk. Um, if you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, it is at McLeod time and if you want to drop us a highlander themed email you can do that as well at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com and if you want to rate and review us then you can do that wherever you're listening to this it is always appreciated and it does help the podcast and well have i missed anything is there anything else to add to that no i think that's it cool okay that just seemed a bit quicker than normal um so uh, anyway we're finally getting there <laughs> we are finally 35 episodes in we have achieved some degree of competency and, you know as as we've been talking about all it takes is a hundred thousand hours Indeed. it is isn't it because you say that it's 35 episodes or is it 36 now it's also about 145 episodes of the movie robcast so uh, so we're finally getting yes yeah, some degree of competency well you are um, I'm, I'm having to check anyway on that utterly professional note Sarah thanks again for being such a wonderful guest oh it's my pleasure always anytime and Rob thank you very much as always an absolute pleasure and thank you for listening and Sarah do you want to take us out all that's left to say is another time McLeod another time McLeod excellent fantastic